0: Landry Brewer, author of Cold War Oklahoma and Cold War Kansas. You've written two books now. Yes. What Was that hard? It was. Why did you write books about the Cold War? The Cold War is, in my opinion, the most interesting part of history. Why? And I teach history. Why is it the most interesting Well, part? it's the most interesting to me, and probably for a variety of reasons. I grew up at the end of it, and so I have memories from childhood, which was a scary time. Also, it it includes great stories and huge personalities, larger-than-life personalities from the history of this country and the world, statesmen. You've got Harry Truman and Joseph Stalin. And you've got Dwight Eisenhower and Nikita Khrushchev and John Kennedy and Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. And all of these world leaders were so important, larger-than-life personalities dealing with life and death matters when what do you, the existence of the world hung in the balance what do you do for a living I teach at Southwestern Oklahoma State University's Sayer campus primarily history a little bit of political science why do you want to teach history because history is interesting because it's a collection of really interesting stories what I tell my students on day one is Regardless of what you think about history, it really is interesting because it's neat stuff that happened. We watch movies, we watch TV, we read books, fiction, because it's stories about people. Well, history is just full of stories about people doing interesting things. And that's why I like history. Do you run across students who, at the beginning of a semester, well, look, you teach history, it's a required course, mm-hmm. right? Do you have students who are there only because it's a required course and yet by the midway point or even at the end of the semester you found that they actually now are interested in history? (laughs) On the first day of the semester, part of the first day lecture is I only half-jokingly tell my students one of my goals for them by the end of the semester is that they will hate history just a little bit less. Now each student in a college class gets to evaluate the class and the professor at the end of each semester. And I get to read them afterward. And it's always satisfying to read the student's comment that is something like, when I came into this class, I didn't like history, or I had a bad background in history. But now I like it, or I like it more, or I didn't know history could be this interesting. That is always gratifying. And it happens. Two books, Cold War Oklahoma was the first one, Cold War Kansas, the second one. You live in Oklahoma, so it's easier to understand how you could do research for it. But how in the world did you do research for Cold War Kansas? You don't live there. Did you have to go there or could you do everything remotely? I did everything remotely. And the research that I started when I started working on the Oklahoma book, I used a lot of that research to write the Kansas book. There are a lot of similarities between Oklahoma's Cold War role and Kansas's Cold War role. It all started four years ago. October 2016, I started researching the Atlas Missile Program. The Atlas was the nation's first intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, meaning it could travel from one continent to another thousands of miles. One Wednesday night, I happened to be over at my parents' house, and my father said, I found a website with some interesting information about the Atlas Missile Program. Now, Oklahoma had Atlas missiles here near Altus air force base. So I got into those documents and the more I read, the more fascinated I became because even though I grew up in Western Oklahoma, occasionally I would hear something about a missile base or a missile site. And I had no idea what anybody was talking about. Well, what I learned was Altus air force base was the hub for 12 ICBMs with nuclear bombs in them as part of the nation's cold war nuclear arsenal. And so I researched it, and I wound up writing about Oklahoma's role. First about the missiles, and then about civil defense, because during the Cold War, Americans were afraid the Soviets were going to attack us with nuclear bombs. And so we started digging holes and identifying fallout shelters to try to live through a nuclear attack. And I read about Oklahoma's fallout shelters and what we did. And then I read about a former University of Oklahoma professor who was accused of not just being a communist, and lost his job at OU because of it. But he went on to work for the federal government in what amounted to the CIA before the CIA existed, and he was accused of being a spy. And I read about him, and I wrote about him, and then I took all of that and I turned it into a book called Cold War Oklahoma. Right. Well, the research about the missiles led me to Kansas because Oklahoma had the Atlas F intercontinental ballistic missile. Kansas also had the Atlas F. And so I knew when I was researching Oklahoma, Kansas had those missiles as well. What I didn't realize at the time was Kansas also had two other kinds of missiles. Oklahoma had one kind of missile. Kansas had three kinds of missiles. Okay. ICBMs, and actually a fourth kind of missile. Oklahoma had the Atlas F ICBM. Kansas had the Atlas E, the Atlas F, and the Titan II. A total of 39 ICBMs. Okay, so did you stumble across Kansas stuff while you're looking for Oklahoma stuff? Yeah. Okay, then how do, you, how do you do research in Kansas, though? Well, I didn't actually have to go to Kansas. And most of my research in Oklahoma was by reading, coming across documents. And the internet is a wonderful thing because through the internet, I had access to lots of documents government documents and archived newspapers about the Atlas Missile Program. And I used a lot of the same research and the the same research methods to research Kansas and the missiles in Kansas. Oklahoma had one Air Force Base, Altus, that operated ICBMs during the Cold War. Kansas had three. Forbes Air Force Base near Topeka, Schilling Air Force Base near Salina, and McConnell Air Force Base near Wichita. A total of 39 ICBMs, part of the nation's nuclear arsenal during the Cold War. So if tensions had escalated, as they nearly did, especially during the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962, those missiles would have been fired in Oklahoma and in Kansas. My guess is Kansans today are a lot like I am today, even ones who grew up in Kansas, probably know very little about the missiles that were in their midst. These things were huge. The missiles were, were very large. Where they were stored in Kansas, very large complexes that cost millions of dollars and provided thousands of jobs to Kansans and people who came from states like Oklahoma and Missouri to work on those sites when they were under construction. Okay, just so we're clear here, these missile sites in Southwest Oklahoma, uh, the sites were built and rockets were here with nuclear warheads in them that in the 1950s and 60s could have or were pointed at russia or could have been pointed at russia and fired on them the oklahoma and kansas sites were all built about 1960 to 62 they were operational from 62 to 65 those are the atlas now the titan they were operational until the 80s where were the locations in southwest oklahoma southwest oklahoma there were 11 in southwest oklahoma and you can't you can't remember one in far north texas but they were places like hobart yeah and granite and lone wolf and just south of mangum at a place called russell creta hollis snyder frederick and the one at Frederick, by the way, exploded in May of 1964. And in far north Texas in a spot in the road called Fargo. So there were 12 of them near Altus Air Force And base. You, you've been to a few, a couple? I've been to th- three. I've been to three of the southwest Oklahoma missile sites, and I've been inside of one of them. Well, a man lives inside of one of them. Can you tell us which one he lives inside of? I can't. It's, it's interesting. He's a very nice fellow. I've been to his home and toured it twice. And you can't give his name either? I can't. I've taken photographs. He said, you can show these photographs. You can publish these photographs. You can talk about me. You can talk about the site. But I, don't, I, I need two things from you. I need your word that you won't tell people my name and you won't tell people where this site is. But somebody lives in one? He lives in it. And he it's t- in Southwest Oklahoma. Bought it in the late '90s. It's one of the Southwest Oklahoma sites that housed an Atlas F ICBM back in the '60s. He lives in it. So you and so you went to this one and looked around twice, and it is amazing because it's the the Atlas F complexes that are in Oklahoma and were in Kansas, very deep. The Atlas F was the first ICBM to to be stored vertically mm-hmm. underground. Completely underground in a hole, a silo, 174 feet deep. So building these sites was dangerous. Uh, in Oklahoma, three men died, two men fell to their death, and one was electrocuted. These are very deep structures that house these missiles. And you said they were built in the early 60s? 60 60 to 62. And they, so that means they provided lots of jobs. They did provide lots of jobs, uh, thousands in Oklahoma thousands of jobs in kansas okay here's one of the big questions that i've had i meant to ask you this probably a year ago and i never did were the locals in willow and granite and frederick and snyder were these people aware of exactly what was being built because if they were projecting myself backward putting myself in their place i would think man this this is a little scary they're putting nukes here so not only do we have possibility of some sort of accident locally but then this is going to put us in the crosshairs for the Russians to shoot at absolutely this was not kept secret this was public information in fact it was common for missiles once the complexes were built the missiles would be brought to each site by a truck and they would travel down the highway they would travel through towns they would sometimes have escorts people would take pictures this was not done in a corner and which was part of the American philosophy at the time, which is if the Soviets know our nuclear capability they're a lot less likely to start a nuclear war. It's what became during the Kennedy administration known as mad or mutual assured destruction. We wanted the Soviets to know our nuclear capabilities and so this was not done secretively and in fact in Oklahoma a big announcement was made uh, by uh, United States Senator Robert S. Kerr. He was one of the people, and it was in the newspapers. Yes, Oklahoma will be a site. Uh, Altus Air Force Base will operate 12 Atlas F missiles as okay. part of the American Strike Force. And so, yes, they were built, and the public knew about them. And it was very frightening for some people. I have a former colleague I taught with at Swazoo Sayer who grew up in Southwest Oklahoma. And she said she remembers as a child when the site near her was being built she was very frightened because because of the site yeah because of the site now i I would think i would think that people just living there would be scared to death because you've got nuclear weapons right here and if the russians know it exists which they did then that's where they're going to come shooting first so they can disable our launch capabilities i was speaking to a man in hobart uh, during a book signing at the tommy franks museum there about a year ago and he told me a story about his childhood. He said one day he was riding his bicycle and was riding close enough to see the Hobart missile. Now occasionally, even though these Atlas missiles in southwest Oklahoma were stored entirely underground, they would occasionally have to raise them above ground level to do what's called a propellant load exercise, which means they have to gas it up and get it ready to launch. It's a launch simulation, so they do everything but actually launch it. Now when they would bring it above ground. It had a liquid oxygen mixture inside of it, and at room temperature, it would boil and mm-hmm. create smoke. And it looked really, really scary. <laughs> and I've got pictures of these in my book. So they look really scary. Well, one day this kid in Hobart, Oklahoma is riding his bicycle, and he sees this missile in Hobart, this raised missile, ominous smoke coming out of the top of it. And he thinks, OK, this is it. <laughs> It's war. I'm about to die. Yeah, we, we can laugh about this now. <laughs> but I imagine it was very frightening if you were the little kid there. It was frightening. In all of my research and in all of my discussions with Oklahomans who, who lived here back in the 60s and who remember the missile sites, I've never come across any information indicating that anybody objected. You know, our father worked at a couple of these sites under construction. He was glad to have the work. Which ones? Uh, he worked at Granite and he worked at cash now our grandfather brewer worked at manitou manitou was one mm-hmm. and i think by now i've probably named all 12 of those sites he worked at manitou so was a missile site down there they were happy to have the jobs now in kansas slightly different story i came across information that kansans were concerned as some oklahomans were but kansans especially seemed to be concerned that they were in the crosshairs more so than oklahomans were kansans were concerned that they would be in the bullseye now granted kansas housed three different kinds of missiles oklahoma had 11 total missiles but how kansas many sites had, kansas had 39 had 39 sites 39 missiles oh, 30 okay how many sites did they have uh there were well there were nine missile sites near topeka 12 missile sites near salina and then the way the titan II, there were 18 of them but there were fewer sites i think it was something like six sites so overall they had more They had, oh yeah, they had 39 missiles. Oklahoma had 11. By the way, Southwest Oklahoma had all these sites. Were there sites in Northeast Oklahoma near Tulsa or Southeast near McAllister? No. uh, The ICBM sites were primarily in the middle of the country, in Oklahoma and Texas and Kansas and Nebraska and New Mexico. Now, there were some Atlas F sites, strangely enough, in New York. But no, Tulsa, those are the only Locations. Well, no I, Tulsa. Do you know how they chose the sites in Oklahoma? Uh, well, they wanted them near Air Force bases. Mm-hmm. They had to be near Air Force bases. And there were criteria, several criteria, at least four. Uh, they had to be, let's see, they had to be close enough to the Soviet Union so that the missiles could reach their targets. They had to be within the continental United States. They had to be uh, far enough away from Soviet submarine missiles. So to be out of the range of those missiles, uh, preferably on government-owned property. And they really wanted them within, they wanted them, it's uh, ironically, they wanted them in rural areas, and yet they wanted there to be a minimum population of about 50,000 within a radius. Why did they want them near Air Force bases? The Air Force bases were the hubs. Uh, They served as as the control centers. And so, for example, in Oklahoma, at each site, at each missile site, you would have a five-man Air Force crew. Mm -hmm. That would work uh, 24 on and 48 off. They lived inside these sites, operating these missiles. And so they would be underground for 24 hours, ready to launch the missile if necessary. When the 24 hours were up, they would come above ground and then they would go back to the base where they would train, where they would get ready and they would do other things. Uh, Sometimes missiles needed lots of maintenance, thousands of parts to these missiles. And so they would have to send them back to Altus Air Force Base. Each Air Force base that operated these missiles had what was called a missile assembly building. Well, that's where they would take the missile parts uh, to uh, maintain them. And so United States Air Force crews operated them. uh, They took care of them. They watched them. And it was each Air Force that oversaw them. Altus Air Force Base in Oklahoma and then the three Air Force bases at uh, Topeka, Salina, and Wichita. This interview is a tale of two books. You've got Cold War Oklahoma, which has to do with missile sites in the state of Oklahoma, specifically southwest Oklahoma back during the Cold War. And then, of course, missile sites and things of that nature in the state of Kansas. Landry Brewer, the author, has written two books. Cold War Oklahoma was the first, Cold War Kansas the second. And I know for the purpose of this interview, it may seem a little bit odd because we sound a lot alike. Uh, Landry's the author. He's doing most of the talking about the stuff. I'm just Nathan asking the questions. And I don't usually do these IDs in a podcast because, frankly, if you've chosen to listen, you know who we are. But because these are special circumstances, I wanted to remind everybody. This voice, me, is Nathan. I didn't write anything. I'm just asking questions. Landry's the author. He'll be doing most of the talking and answering questions about his two books, Cold War Oklahoma and Cold War Kansas. Nathan, in Kansas, students at McPherson College in McPherson protested. Didn't want them. They did not want the missiles. Because? Because they were call them peaceniks they were uh-huh. they weren't they weren't necessarily they weren't just angry at the united states they they wanted uh, to eliminate nuclear weapons worldwide a peace not uh, a a a peace not war mantra uh they did protest and supposedly a group of students from the same college though probably a different group of students may have vandalized at least one of the atlas sites under construction in kansas and i i came across some editorials from kansas newspapers where the editorialist said, you know, we're not going to be naive. We have nuclear missiles here. We know we're probably on a target list. In a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union, we are probably in the crosshairs. And I came across multiple newspaper stories dealing. where are dealing with uh, that concern and nuclear fallout. In the, in the event of a nuclear exchange, one of the concerns was, even if a nuclear bomb blast didn't kill you, the nuclear fallout that lingered in the environment Mm -hmm. might. And that's why the country was adamant, particularly under President Kennedy, about identifying nuclear fallout shelters and then stocking them. You know the crazy-looking, strange yellow and black signs, the federal fallout shelter signs? You you used to see them around more than you do now. You don't see them anymore, hardly at all anymore. uh, In Clinton, on the Methodist Church building, one exists. On the campus of Southwestern Oklahoma State University and Weatherford, one exists on the outside of the administration building. One exists on the inside. That means those were designated federal fallout shelters. So they met the criteria and they would have been stocked with food, water barrels, medicines, and maybe even uh, medical equipment. The first book, Cold War Oklahoma, came out, what, in May of 19? Yes. In, excuse me, April. April of... 20- late April. 2019 uh did you sell some books yeah uh-huh. sold some uh signed a lot had some in-person events they're avail- they were available locally also available online and so so they, i people, think it's still selling okay people can still get cold war oklahoma they can cold war kansas is it come out yet there was some there was some uh, confusion about that it published august 24th okay so technically it's for sale it is for <laughs> sale <laughs> one of the things that you write about in cold war kansas has to do with a TV movie, a made for TV movie in the 1980s called The Day After. Remind everybody what that was about and why you included it in the book. Do you, Nathan, do you remember seeing any of this? Yes. In eight, 19, I, think, in I 19, think I do. In 1983, you and I would have been seven. Yeah. I think I remember seeing snippets on television, but I'm glad I didn't watch the whole thing. Freaky? I would have been so scared. And it's funny because I've spoken to people who are about our age. Mm-hmm. And, and one person in particular said, oh. He knew I, what I wrote, I wrote. I wrote the book, and I was going to write about the day after, and he told me how traumatizing <laughs> watching that movie was for him. He was probably I don't know ten or twelve years old. Jason eighty three. Ro- Jason Robards played a guy. Jason Robards, Steve Gutenberg. you know, Police Academy. Right, right, right. Th- those quality movies. So uh, Lawrence was it Lawrence Kansas, which by the way is the home of the University of Kansas, was the setting of the movie. And the upshot is that the movie is about the nu- the Russians hit us with nukes and they land in Kansas. And what happens after that? What's funny is, growing up in the 1980s, I think every fourth movie was a Cold War movie. Whether it was Rocky IV or Red Dawn. That's right, Wolverine. Which was also scary. Or The Day After. What happened was, there was a peak in intensity in the Cold War in October of 62. Cuban Missile Crisis. We come awfully close to nuclear war with the Soviet Union. Well, we got so close that both sides were sobered by it, and so there was a, a relaxation going forward into the 60s and 70s. In fact, there's a, there's a French word called détente, meaning a relaxation of tensions. But once you hit the 1980s and the presidency of Ronald Reagan, there was a renewal and a heightening of Cold War tensions and arms races. American weapons purchases really fell off in the 70s, and Ronald Reagan came in into office in 1981 determined to spend a lot more money and strengthen American military forces and American nuclear capabilities, daring the Soviet Union to do the same, to try to match our spending, thinking it would ultimately bankrupt the Soviet Union. So in the early 80s there is heightening Cold War tensions. And in 1983 ABC aired the made-for-TV movie called The Day After. Now, The Day After was set in kansas it's about a nuclear attack on kansas city and then the fallout in lawrence kansas so it was set in kansas it was shot on location in kansas in lawrence and many of its cast members were just average people from lawrence kansas and you wrote about this i wrote about this in cold war kansas because it was so influential in in really scaring president reagan ronald this movie aired in november of 83 he got a private screening the month before and after watching the movie president reagan wrote in his own diary that the movie depressed him and he was determined after watching the day after to do everything he could to make sure nuclear war never happened and fast forward to 1987 the soviet leader is mikhail gorbachev and reagan and gorbachev met multiple times at summits, trying to trying to iron out some arms reductions agreements to tamp down the fear and the arms race. Well, in December of 1987, President Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF. What this did was it eliminated an entire class of nuclear weapons, all nuclear missiles with ranges of between about 300 and 3,400 miles, were outlawed. They were done away according to the terms of the 1987 INF Treaty, which was a huge breakthrough in the Cold War, eliminating an entire class of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. After signing that treaty, President Reagan sent a message to the director of the day after, Nicholas Meyer, and he said regarding signing the INF Treaty don't think your movie didn't have something to do with this because it did he credited the day after with motivating him to sign a treaty with the Soviet Union eliminating nuclear weapons when we talk about the Cold War cold means people aren't literally standing shooting at each other but two nations don't like each other and there's a problem what would you say are the dates when it started and when it ended I would s- <laughs> the start date and I don't mean I don't mean a specific day but what like a year Wait, from what year to what year you could argue that the Cold War started by the time World War II ended in 1945. You could also argue it started before then. Historians typically say, oh, by 46 or 47. So I, I say 45. So let's keep it round. We'll say it started in 1945 and ended when? 1991. The Soviet Union ceased to exist. It went away. It imploded. But when did the wall come down? Ninety? 1989. 1989. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't put the book in there? No. I would say, well, the Soviet Union didn't end until 1991. Now, some some say, some would argue with me and say, well, it really was over by 89. Uh, I'm of the school of thought that says as long as the Soviet Union existed, the Cold War was still going on. So, 45 to 91? Yeah, I call its about a 45-year Cold War. It's a non-event in yeah. that it was never a hot war, officially. It was never officially a hot war. Now, what we learned after <laughs> it ended was actually— Americans and Soviets did shoot at each other and kill each other in the skies over Korea during the Korean War in the early 1950s. But both sides kept it from the public until the Cold War ended. Okay, this Landry and I, as we speak right now, are 44 years old. So when we're very young, in the 1980s, it was towards the end of the Cold War, and yet there was this period of escalation where everybody's scared to death of the Russians right here. Well, in Russia, the Soviet Union, they were scared of us, too. So we're getting near the end of this great period. So we lived at the end of it. And for those who are listening now who are alive in 1962 during the Cuban missile crisis, that was the absolute scariest part. But to think that in this 45, 46 year period, the Southwest Oklahoma, I mean, Willow and and Manitou and, and Snyder and right here at home that we played a role. And that's why you wanted to write the book. And I know you probably learned a lot of stories from people right here anything humorous stand out to you from what you learned the stories you heard people tell well the story i told earlier about the boy on the bicycle that's pretty funny that was pretty funny hearing hearing a, a coworker say how frightened she was i mean that was really sobering uh, funny stories oh our father f- doesn't remember driving home from work one night he was so tired apparently he worked <laughs> Did he work a double shift? I mean, of course, he was driving from, um, what was it, Granite to Elk City. But back in the, in the early 1960s here in western Oklahoma, there, there, you farmed or didn't do much of anything else because the economy just wasn't even what it is now. And so they were probably just excited to have jobs. Jobs were very hard to come by. The adults, The adults who were poor and got work were probably less concerned about the nuclear aspect and more concerned about, I'm getting a paycheck. I'm getting a paycheck. I've got mouths to feed. Did did the Kansas Cold War experience and what they did in their sites was it was it vastly different from Oklahoma? I won't say it was vastly different. There was just more of it because they had three times the number the, the type of missiles. Uh, they had almost almost four times the number of missiles. And I haven't really talked about the Titan II missile, which was the largest missile. That the United States has ever had. It was the largest ICBM. It had as its nuclear bomb a nine megaton warhead, which doesn't mean anything to anybody. The atomic bombs we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. If you've ever seen the footage, you've ever heard about the number of people killed. Two bombs killed about 210,000 people, obliterated two cities, and killed about 210,000 people. The Atlas missiles we had in Southwest Oklahoma, each one of them had a nuclear bomb more than 200 times more powerful than the atomic bombs we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well, Kansas had those bombs too, but they also had the Titan II. Now, the Titan II had the nation's most destructive nuclear warhead. Each Titan II missile in Kansas, and there were 18 of them, each Titan II missile in Kansas had a nine megaton warhead, meaning Equivalent to 9 million tons of TNT, or 600 times more powerful than the atomic bombs we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And those missiles, if they had ever been launched at the Soviet Union, they would have arrived in less than an hour, traveling at speeds up to 16,000 miles an hour. So concerned were Kansans about surviving, and Kansas State University, that in the early 60s, Kansas State University hired a man named Jerry Betcher. Then a 23-year-old nuclear engineer in Kansas State University hired Jerry Betcher to travel all over Kansas and teach people, locals, how to survive a nuclear blast, how to survive nuclear war. Because they really thought it was possible. They thought it was not just possible. They thought it was probable. And Jerry said that his most memorable class was his largest class in Dodge City, Kansas. That's in the southwest part of the state. Where did you get this information? I got it I actually found it online in an interview he conducted, but because of circumstances, I actually met him through the internet and communicated with him. Ah. He said his most memorable class was in Dodge City. It was his largest class, but it was also memorable for another reason. It was held November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. Oh wow. Which was the day President Kennedy was assassinated. He found out about it, but he said this was before cell phones. So we had no way to instantly communicate with people, and they would have already shown up. And so they went ahead and had class. Because people traveled from quite a distance to these classes. All right. Your book has been sold at Amazon? Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart. All right. Let's go back to the first book, Cold War Oklahoma. Later I'm going to read parts of two reviews. One is negative, One is positive. Okay? Okay. Let me do the negative first. Uh, On a five-star rating, gave it three, which is not terrible, but the words I wanted to ask you about this. This is a reviewer from Amazon, three out of five stars, not as good as the description makes it seem. I had high hopes for this book, but it did not deliver. First couple of chapters were good, and the chapter about the spy was interesting, but this is not a good example of academic writing, which is what I was expecting from a college history professor. If you were looking for a comprehensive book on the role Oklahoma played during the Cold War, this is not it. There are several chapters where the author describes his personal experiences of researching and learning about the topic, but I don't think it was necessary to recount that in historical writing. For example, he spent an entire chapter talking about the people he met and thanked them for their help. The type of information should be in the acknowledgments, not in the middle of the book. I also did not like the use of I throughout the book. It was frustrating to read and is not a professional way to write. While he used I a lot, I did not learn about his interpretation of historical material, which ultimately makes up historical books. It was uh, more of a regurgitating of information he had learned into a narrative format as a historian. I would not suggest this book to anyone seriously interested in the topic, but a casual reader may enjoy it more than I did. What's your response? Sometimes people are disappointed when, whether it's a book they read or a movie they see, isn't the way they think it's supposed to be. Now, I knew going into Cold War, Oklahoma, that I was going to do things a little bit differently. I was going to try to make it more relatable to the average reader. I had my own students in mind when I wrote a lot of it. Now, there is academic writing in there. But there's also, I also broke a few rules about academic writing in certain chapters. Not many. Now, the reviewer said, I don't like the use of I throughout the book. I didn't use I throughout the book. I used it in maybe two chapters. Of the 10 or 12 chapters in the book, I may have used it in two chapters. And so that was an exaggeration. Uh, The person wanted a more comprehensive view. Well, you're limited to your sources. You can only write about the information you find. And Oklahoma didn't have the greatest role in the Cold War. I think I wrote fairly comprehensively about the aspects that I wrote about. Now, if that person has access to more information, to more sources, that would be fine. Who did you intend this book for?
1: Uh, What audience did you have in mind? I
0: intended everybody from scholars. And by the way, I've had scholars. I've had people with PhDs praise me and praise the book. I've had historians tell me, this is a really good book. I want to share this. In fact, one of the reviews is from a historian, a PhD at Columbia College in Columbia, Missouri. Well, in fact, we'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, but I had I had historians and scholars in mind, but I also had average readers in mind. I had 18-year-old college freshmen in mind and high school students in mind. And there is something for everybody in the book. Well, I, I will not at this point go on a tangent about historical writing and academic writing. <laughs> but suffice it to say, uh, historians who write for historians, PhD, and there's nothing wrong with having a PhD. There's nothing wrong with being a, an academic, but there's a tendency among historians and historical writers to write for other historical writers so they can use each other for research and maybe even impress each other whereas the average person who's just interested in the past and wants to find out they need a book that's written differently interestingly (laughs) instead of a very dry recitation of nothing but fact So there's that okay let me read you the positive review and i think you were probably alluding to this okay let me go up to the top here again this is an amazon review for landry brewer's first book cold war oklahoma quote this work constitutes a masterful overview of ordinary oklahomans in no ordinary time citizens were learning to live with the threat of a nuclear holocaust perhaps the most significant theme is what the author references on page 121 that is the deep ties that had emerged between the citizens of the sooner state and what President Eisenhower famously called the military-industrial complex. He goes on to say it is a delight to read from beginning to end because it features several lighthearted vignettes about the strange and wonderful adaptations that shaped the Cold War era. After surveying the origins of the arms race, the author delves carefully into the Atlas F missile program and describes the 11 sites in the southwestern portion of the state. And it goes on from there and says some nice things about the book. Now, this is actually a blurb, right? This is an editorial review. This isn't a, quote, reader review. This is an editorial review, or that's the way Amazon lists it. Yeah. Did he blurb this for your book, or was this separate? Uh, Yes and no. My publisher doesn't actually put blurbs on books, but he did provide it. This is from who? Dr. Brad Lookingbill. And who is Brad Lookingbill? Brad Lookingbill is an Oak City, Oklahoma native. Uh, A Merritt High School graduate, a SWAZU graduate, and then he went on from SWAZU and got a master's degree and a PhD, and he is now a history professor at Columbia College in Columbia, Missouri. must have felt good to get that review. It was very good. From a historian. Yeah, Brad Lookingbill, nice guy. It was very nice. Uh, One last thing I want to ask you about. You have, with the previous book, the first one, Cold War Oklahoma, you had several signing events and, and talks you gave, right? Yes. Did you keep a total number? I didn't, but it was a lot. Like 10, 12, 15, 20? Uh, If you go back, of course, I've been talking and writing about this for more than three years. And in that time, I've traveled from Shamrock, Texas to, well, Oklahoma City, okay, talking. For my money, the coolest thing you did... Wait, you went to... Didn't you do uh, Tulsa? Uh, oh, that, well, actually, that's true. I did go to Tulsa. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, uh, from, right, uh, summer of 2019, I went to Tulsa. For my money, though, the coolest thing I know of that you did was this event at the Boathouse District in Oklahoma City because you were there with a gentleman who had just written a book himself, Scott Pelley, who is a journalist for uh, CBS News, and he was the anchor the managing editor of the CBS Evening News, for a while. He's been with 60 Minutes forever. I mean, this is big time. So to have been at that event with Scott Pelley and to have met him, that for my money, that's probably the neatest thing you did on tour. That was neat. Uh, Something else that was neat. And by the way, I tracked down Scott while we took our picture together. And he's a very lovely fellow. He signed a book for me that I gave away to a brother. And he allowed me to take his picture with him. And he's a very nice guy. At this event, I was on a panel talking about my book. Another author, professor in Oklahoma City, was talking about a book she had written, and our moderator was a Northwestern Oklahoma State University dean and history professor named Dina Fisher. However, she grew up dean of music in Elk City, Oklahoma, so she may be known to some of our listeners. But that was a really neat event. Uh, Writing, researching both books, writing both books, has been a very neat process. Now, going forward... With COVID-19, I'm not sure how much traveling and how many book events I'll get to do in Kansas for Cold War Kansas. But writing Cold War Kansas, you could argue as important as Oklahoma's role was and as meaningful as learning about it was for me, because I'm from Oklahoma, you could actually argue that the Kansas role was greater. In fact, I argue in the book that Kansas could lay claim to the most important role in, Oklahoma, uh, in the United States. Because of its—and uh, no other state— operated three uh, three Air Force bases that served as hubs for missiles. Uh, many states had two, but Kansas was the only state I could find that operated three Air Force bases that served as hubs for intercontinental ballistic missiles. Kansas produced a president. One of my chapters is about President Dwight Eisenhower. And... If there's a student out there, if there's a general reader out there, and you've never read anything or don't know much at all about Dwight Eisenhower, I had you in mind when I wrote this. It's about his handling of the Cold War. And Dwight Eisenhower was the first person, as one of his biographers put it, the first person in history to hold the fate of the world in his hands. Because it was under President Eisenhower that the United States first had thermonuclear bombs. The atomic bombs we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were exceptionally powerful. Thermonuclear bombs were hundreds of times more powerful than that. And this Abilene, Kansas native, this 1909 graduate of Abilene High School, went on to become arguably the most important president during the Cold War. In fact, Dwight Eisenhower was one of only two presidents to serve two full terms during the Cold War. And his handling of it, over and over and over again, he was faced with A series of nuclear war crises and avoided war. He got us out of Korea, the Korean War, and then we didn't go to war during the rest of his presidency. And he's from Kansas. And I wrote about him. And I wrote about missiles. And I wrote about civil defense. And I wrote about the day after. And Kansas, because of all of that, could make the argument that Kansas, more than any other state, uh, helped the United States win the Cold War. Where can people purchase these two books? They can purchase them at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. They can also purchase them directly from the publisher. It's Arcadia Publishing slash The History Press. The History Press was purchased by Arcadia Publishing. But if you do a Google search, you can find it pretty quickly and easily. All right. The first book was Cold War, Oklahoma. Second book is Cold War, Kansas. I've joked with you that uh, you've only got 48 to go now. (laughs) Are you looking at doing more? I've written two books, and after each one, I've thought, I am never doing this again. Right now, that's where I am. I don't ever want to write another book, which is exactly how I felt immediately after I published the last one. Because You never know. People are wondering about Cold War Arkansas right now. You never now. know. Landry Brewer is author of Cold War Oklahoma and now the latest to come out, Cold War Kansas. Landry, thanks for going one-on-one with me. It was my pleasure, Nathan. Thanks for having me.